So lately there's been a lot of excitement around the Star Wars series. Many of you will know that Disney Plus, uh, a streaming service, came out recently, and one of its prime offerings was they were going to start off with a series called The Mandalorian, and that's really a story that's set in the Star Wars universe with a bounty hunter. And if you're ever on social media, you will have seen about a thousand Baby Yoda memes, right? Because you've got the Mandalorian bounty hunter with a cute little Baby Yoda, and that's certainly generating a lot of buzz. But of course, that timing was not coincidental, that they'd put this out uh, when it did, because it was time to coincide with the next of the Star Wars movies, The Rise of Skywalker, and that came out, I believe, this weekend. And one of the things about the Star Wars series is, when it first came out, it was so groundbreaking in so many of its special effects, groundbreaking in the fantastic universe it showed. I can remember as a child uh, seeing these and being so excited, especially after The Empire Strikes Back, so excited to see Return of the Jedi come out. And it would come out, uh, I believe, in 1983, so I saw it when I was still pretty little, about 11 uh, years old, I think. And so you watch that, and you think, man, that's excited. I can't wait to have more, and nothing. Star Wars didn't release another movie until 16 years later. And I was so excited because I can remember how much I loved Star Wars, how much I envied friends that had like the toy Millennium Falcon and all those sorts of things that you'd look at and think these were great. And even though you outgrew it, you want nostalgia looking back at the wonderful series that you enjoyed as a child. So when I heard in uh, the, um, uh, the, the coming in the late 90s of the, the new movie, The Phantom Menace, which is one of the prequels, they're going to do three movies that tell of the lead up to the original Star Wars, how excited it was. I got even more excited to realize it's the same director, George Lucas. I also got excited to hear some of the people that were cast in it because Liam Neeson is in there. He's a great actor. Ewan McGregor's a great actor. I knew he was coming up in that. Natalie Portman's a great actor. And it seemed fantastic. And I also heard all of these great reviews about how much the CGI or the special effects had improved in the years since the original Star Wars came out. So I thought this is fantastic. So I rushed out to go and see this as soon as I could. And I must tell you, I left that movie thinking this was terrible. And it was a disappointment for me in lots of different ways, but uh, really, in many ways, you'd think it shouldn't be, because it really did have some good actors. It really did have an exciting story. It really did have a lot of good special effects. You know what the problem was? The supporting actors stunk. It had perhaps the most irritating figure in all of cinematic history with Jar Jar Binks. Terrible. He's terrible. You disagree with me, Bernie? Ah. Uh. Ah. Uh. There's, there's the guy with, with, he's a Philistine here, a cretin, he doesn't recognize the truth. You liked him too? My goodness, I've got a full-scale rebellion. I find your lack of faith disturbing. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I've heard mixed reviews as well, but... I also, you know, it was not just Jar Jar Binks, a lot of the other supporting cast, you know, it was supposed to be the story about how the backstory for the whole Skywalker family, and unfortunately the child they cast, you know, he's a child, but wasn't great as an actor. And so you found that at the end of this, you thought, you know, it had so many good elements, a strong story, good special effects, good leads, uh, like good actors, but the supporting actors often undermined the good things that were there. And so you left the movie thinking, ah, it wasn't that great. It's so one of those things you learn, of course, about movie making, too, is, is that when you watch the, the Academy Awards, Best Supporting Actor or Actress are really important because Best Supporting Actors and Actresses often don't get much notice on the screen. But what makes them a really good supporting actor or actress is, is that they recognize they're not supposed to be the ones getting the attention. 
Their job is to help the story move forward, to help the main actors shine, and to do so without drawing too much attention to themselves. And when they do their job well, you almost don't notice them unless you specifically look for them, pay close attention to what they've done, and then you realize they've had a pivotal role in making that movie a success. Now, I mention that not just because it's in the public mind about Star Wars. I mention it because I, I often think of that analogy when we come to the figure of St. Joseph, who is Jesus' adoptive father. And I think of that because in many ways, Joseph is a person who, if you read this story, you can easily forget about. He's a person who is always on the sidelines. He's a person who doesn't get much uh, time in the forefront. And yet we recognize him, A, as a great saint, but also, if we look closer, we realize that he has a pivotal role in the history of salvation and the history of Jesus' birth and coming to age. I want to speak to you today about the importance of the supporting character, and not just to draw attention to this person for his own sake, but to draw attention to him for our sake, because for most of us, we won't be center stage in this world very often. Most of us won't be Winston Churchill. We won't be the prime minister. We won't be the person that goes down in history. But our supporting roles in the history of salvation are deeply important. And the story of St. Joseph and his work here in the Gospel story, I think, teaches us some important things, especially when we feel like we're not at center stage like we might want to be. So first of all, the first thing that I wanted to mention is how it is that Joseph distinguishes himself by his willingness to be a person always supportive and never pushing himself into the front. I'm going to read to you a few of the things again that I just read to you from Matthew chapter 1, but then go on to look at some of the other ways that Matthew is shown later in the gospel. And pay attention to the role he has, but also to where he stands relative to the other people. First off, just after Joseph had uh, resolved uh, to put Mary away, believing quite reasonably that she had been unfaithful, his fiancé had been unfaithful to him, but we're told he's a righteous man, but also a compassionate man was no desire to heap shame upon her. In a traditional society, that's exactly what would have happened, a great deal of shame upon her. But he says, I don't want to do that or contribute to it. But immediately we're told, after he comes to, to think this, the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, you're to name him Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife, but had no marital relations with her until she had borne a son, and he named him Jesus. Here's what's really interesting about this, and it becomes more clear when you compare the story of Joseph being uh, approached by the angel and Mary, which is told in Luke's gospel. Do you remember what happens in Mary's case where Gabriel comes to visit her in Luke's Gospel in chapter 1? Mary is visited by a spectacular angel, and he says, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. And she's perplexed, we're told. And then the angel says, Do not be afraid, and then tells her that this uh, baby con conceived in you will be the, the Messiah. And then Mary uh, asks, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. And then the, the angel uh, speaks and explains the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And, and then Mary goes on from there uh, because the angel has said, your, your cousin Elizabeth is pregnant in her old age. You can go visit. And she does. And then when she sees Elizabeth, she, she yells out that wonderful and sings out that wonderful song in Luke's gospel. My soul shall magnify the Lord. Uh, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She has these lines that she sings out. All wonderful things. And then compare this to Joseph. 
hey, Joseph doesn't actually have an angel visit him physically. An angel speaks to him in a dream. We find that Joseph here, we're told, uh, has no lines whatsoever. He doesn't even speak. We're not told anything about Joseph apart from the fact that his connection is to Mary. We hear all of these things about Joseph, and all we really hear about him about him, is what he does in response to what the angel says. Joseph does not take center stage. He is told instead, your job is to protect this woman, and to protect this child, and to give them the name that God has told you to give him. It's interesting if you look a little bit further, the famous story that we'll hear on Epiphany, the visit of the wise men, in chapter 2 of Matthew, just the next chapter over. We're told that when the wise men come after this long journey they've had, chapter 2, verse 10, when they saw the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy, and entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage, and then they give him the gifts. Joseph's not mentioned there. Mary's given mention. Jesus is given mention. They worship Jesus. They give him the gifts. When does Joseph come in? Not with another line, not with anything he's done. We are told only a little bit afterwards that Herod, the king, wants to kill the babies, and so Joseph is told um, by a dream again. Go, take the baby, take their mother, and flee to Egypt. Joseph does it. We hear nothing about his thought process. We hear nothing about questions. And then we're told a little bit later when Herod dies, he's told by another angelic visitation in his dreams to go back. Then we don't see him again for the rest of the gospel. We know almost nothing about Joseph. The only reason we know he's a carpenter is actually because Jesus goes back to his hometown of Nazareth, and people don't like what he has to say, and they say, isn't this guy the son of a carpenter? as if he's unlearned and not a great prophet. So that's the only reason. By second hand, we learn that Joseph is in fact a carpenter. Joseph never gets center stage. Joseph is never uh, really talked about very much through the Gospels. He seems to come on to do his role and then to disappear. And even more than that, he takes the voluntary step when he's decided, look, Mary's going to probably be exposed to a great deal of shame. I don't want to increase that shame. And instead, when the angel comes and says to him, take Mary as your wife, he says, I voluntarily take on the shame that will be heaped on her. We don't hear about it much, but we know, of course, what Joseph will have been snickered at throughout all of his life. He's been cuckolded. He's raising some other dude's child. Here's a person who is a fool. We look at Joseph and we say, here is a man who simply did what was required of him. And what he knew was required of him was, my job is to support the ones who are at the center of this drama. And that's what he does. Joseph is called a righteous man because that's what he does, not because he wins flame and not because he wins glory. That's an important thing for us to learn because, of course, throughout all the ages, it has always been the case that, of course, the people who get the most fame, who has the most wealth, the people who are at the top, oftentimes think of themselves as the most important. And it's not just them. How often it is that we think of them as the most important. You're the most famous, you're the most powerful, you're the most rich, and therefore you're the most important and worthy. And of course, as Christians, we recognize that Jesus loves all of us. We recognize the importance of us as everyday people. But it's really hard for us when we toil out into the world or we toil in the church to actually believe that somebody who doesn't take center stage and doesn't get praise is really just as important as the person who does. Think about how often it is that we look at how an office runs efficiently. Why is it that this office runs well? Oftentimes, it's because the everyday people toiling away in their cubicles are doing the job that they are called to do. And they do it without much complaint. They do it without much fanfare. But who is it that usually gets the praise? It's the manager who gets the praise. 
They get the award and look at all the sales or look at all the productivity you've enjoyed. How easy is it for us while we toil away doing the job that we signed on for, the job that we were given, and we say, why do I bother because I'm not getting the praise that I deserve? Certainly as a parent, I have often felt this, right? Talk about a thankless task. And especially it's, it's heightened around Christmas season. Anytime you're thinking, I've got to get the things done to make Christmas a good Christmas, you begin to realize when you start you know, making that list of things you need to do about, well, we, we need to do Christmas baking because we want to send it to Aunt so-and-so. We want to send some to my, my parents and I want to do this and this. Or you think, you know, we need to have a nice Christmas dinner because my, maybe my mother's getting older and used to host it, but now I want to host her. And, and then you think about the, the stocking stuffers you have to get and you think about the presents that you need to get. And then you come home uh, from work and think, oh, I'd love to sit down and relax, but I can't. I've got to go out and fight the, 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 the cheerful people out there in the mall, right? And even worse, of course, we've had weather that's gone nuts and you do all those things. And sometimes, you know, I can think of times where, you know, you come home and you, you, you make the Christmas dinner and then your kids eat three bites and, eh, why, why did I do this? And of course, that sort of magnifies what often you feel as a parent. It's not just in Christmas. You know, you put out breakfast, you provide a home, you do all of these things and you think, I, I don't get the return that I wish I did from that. Sadly, it even happens in the church, and it's not right that it happens, but it often happens in the church that people toil away and they don't get recognized for it very much. I mean, if you think even in our own congregation, when we're sitting here in these, these chairs, we're enjoying the space that we're in, why do we enjoy the space? It's because people faithfully, without fanfare and blowing a trumpet, put money in the plate that pays for our rent. Why do you think we don't have filth on the ground? Because people quietly go and clean up after the service. Why it is that we have bread each time is because somebody bakes it. Why is it that we have the things that we do, we hear the readings, we hear all these different things that get done. It's because people who don't get to wear fancy robes and don't get to be up front have done all of these things. And it's very easy when we're doing these things to forget them doing it. And it's not right to forget them. But it's also sometimes pretty easy to do these things and grumble in our own hearts and think to ourselves, I'm not getting praise, I'm not getting glory, and so therefore somehow I'm not being valued. We look at a guy like St. Joseph, however, and we realize the pivotal value that this guy has in the story of salvation. He is entrusted with the sacred task of protecting and providing for the Holy Family. Joseph, by taking on the role of being a protector, even though it cost him a great deal and cost him a lot in his reputation, he is the person who ensures that Mary and Jesus are kept safe when they're wicked and powerful one, the one who gets all the attention, does something evil to try and kill this child. Joseph quietly simply does what he's told, simply protects, and does it at the cost of his own reputation. He is not somebody who gets praised and magnified. He doesn't even get much billing in the story. But his role ensures that the rest of the story can continue. He deserves praise. I look at that and I think, you know, we aren't told much about the internal state of Joseph or what motivates him. But I often think of that great way that Jesus speaks in the parable. And he speaks in a parable and says, at the end of what these people have done, Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant. Is that our motivation? Are we willing to say, yes, I have a supporting role. Yes, I'm not going to win the praise and adoration of the world around me. Why am I doing it? Because the praise and adoration I really want is the praise and love for my Savior because He calls me to do the things right for me and right for this world. It is an encouragement to us that even when we don't win all the accolades we wish we would, God watches what we do. 
He assigns us our roles not because fame is important. He assigns us our roles because he knows what we can do and knows that what we do, even in small ways, are deeply important. Your job is important. Your job as a parent is important. And what you do here for the church is important. And God notices even when the world doesn't. Don't think for a moment that it makes it somehow less important because the world doesn't praise it. Joseph teaches us that. But here's the other thing that I find really interesting about Joseph, and I think challenging particularly to people in the modern age. And one of the things that we notice about Joseph is is that not only does he not get taught billing, we're told almost nothing about the internal life that Joseph enjoys. I'm going to read to you a few bits from Luke chapter 2 and see what, again, a contrast we hear in Mary's reception of what it is that's told to her about the birth as opposed to the reception that Joseph gives. We look at Luke chapter 1 and we see how it is that Mary responds when it comes to the angel Gabriel visiting her. After the angel greets her, in verse 29 of chapter 1, she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. She's perplexed, she's pondering, we're told about the inner state that this woman has. Then a little bit later, Mary says to the angel and questions the angel and has a back and forth conversation with the angel. How can this be since I'm a virgin? And then the angel explains. Then a little bit later, we're told, Mary speaks to the angel. Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. She has given her consent, and she has embraced what God has wanted. She's spoken about her own motivation. Then, of course, we're also told in the Magnificat about some of the things and the joy exploding out of her, the excitement that she's part of something important. We're not told any of that about Joseph. We don't know what he's thinking. All we know is he's righteous, he's compassionate, wants to do the right thing, and does what God tells him to do. Think even of Jesus, where, where Jesus, for example, is, is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been told something that God has, has told him to do. He is supposed to go to the cross, and he weeps, and he sweats blood, and he wrestles with God, and he prays, let this cup pass from me. We're told something about Jesus' internal state in a very deep way. And one of the great things that the modern church has done is it's recognized that that interior life matters. That for many years, the church unfortunately sort of said, you know, it doesn't really matter what you think. Don't give us your feedback. Just do your duty. We've emerged out of that age. and We've recognized that emotional connection can be a great thing. That internal contemplation can be a great thing. These things can be great. And yet the problem is, is we look at Joseph and none of that is told about him. Sometimes in the modern church that values our emotional connections and the depth of our thought, we tend to forget that why Joseph is praised is not because of the depth of his thought or the inner interior emotional state. He is praised because he simply does what God tells him to do, and he does it when God says to do it, not when he chooses or prefer to do it. And one of the great things, of course, about having an internal life is that you can experience that emotional connection with God. But we forget sometimes that that emotional connection, all of those things in the scriptures where we see righteous people in their internal life, it ends with them doing what God wants. Mary has this pondering. She holds on to these things. She questions. And what does she say at the end? Let it be done to me according to your word. She does what God asks. Jesus sweats blood. Let this cup pass from me. And then, not my will, but yours be done. And he goes to the cross. One of the dangers, unfortunately, when we have an interior life, as rich as it may be, is that sometimes we forget that that is intended not just to enrich our interior life, it's also intended to help us serve God better. If you're like me, sometimes in my worst moments, and I'm thinking deep thoughts, and I'm feeling deep feelings, you kind of pat yourself on the back and say, man, I'm, I'm pretty deep, right? I've really thought this thing through pretty well. 
or how compassionate I feel towards this, this homeless person as I walk past him and do absolutely nothing, right? How easy is it for us to say, well, Jesus, I love you so dearly and I feel so, so, so full of worshipful feelings as I worship you and then I go into the world and I don't do anything he asks me to do. One of the real challenges for us when we do have that rich interior life is to remember it's supposed to enrich what we do. It's not supposed to replace what we do. At Christmas time nowadays, of course, we're going to look around and, 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 and we can see that there are going to be people we will meet today that we've been meeting in the past, we'll be meeting over the next few days who are lonely people. We may say we feel sorry, but do we say something beyond that, which is the elderly lady who lives next door and doesn't have any family? Have we considered maybe bringing her a casserole or inviting him over, her over for a few snacks on Christmas? Have we considered a word of kindness to the socially awkward guy at the office that we always uh, avoid because he never uh, has anything interesting to say. Could it be that he wonders why it is that nobody wants to talk to him and won't spend time in Christmas with anybody? And you've said, you know, I don't just feel sorry for you. I will sacrifice some of my own entertainment and spend some time talking to you in coffee hour. How easy is it for us to say, I feel for you and forget that God gives us these feelings, not just that we experience them, but so that it motivates us to faithfully act. But I also say that's a challenge for us, but I also say there's an encouragement for us. And then by saying this, Joseph is a person who simply does what God says, and he does it faithfully and well. I think sometimes if you're the kind of person for whom that's your natural tendency, to act, to see what needs to be done, and doing it without a lot of chawing about it, without a lot of fuss, without a lot of interior reflection, sometimes the church gives you the impression in a modern day that somehow you're not as good a Christian as the person who is really deeply feeling things. We place a value in emotion, that's fine. Be an emotional person, absolutely great. Not everybody's there. Not everybody's introspective. Again, what is it that makes the church go round is not just everybody's of one personality type. Sometimes a person would be a person who doesn't feel the strong emotional connection, but does it because he knows it's right or she knows it's right. And how often throughout the history of the church, there are really difficult times where people are sorrowful and depressed because things aren't going well. It is the person who says, you know what, it is sorrowful and depressing, but I'm not going to let it get me down. I'm just going to do it. That's often what I've relied on when I go through times of depression or sorrow is the kind of person who says, yeah, I feel bad too, but I'm just going to do it. And in the end is what we're called to do as parents, what we're called to do as servants of the Lord. And if you're that kind of person, be assured that Joseph's example tells us something important, that you are just as valuable, just as important, and just as faithful as a Christian as the person who really feels deeply. What the Lord asks is not how deeply do you feel, he's asking do you love me enough to do what I've called you to do? And that's what Joseph did. Sometimes it wins you praise. Sometimes it doesn't. And in the end, when the Lord says, love your neighbor as yourself, he doesn't just mean feel good things about your neighbor. He means love them. And people who can do that are people that God notices and says, well done. So what did we learn from Joseph? We learned that it's okay to accept being in a supporting role. Not many of us are called to take the lead, and that's just fine. The Lord doesn't ask who's the lead actor. He simply asks, have you played the part I've given to you? But also secondly, remember how important it is that we actually listen to what God says and we do it. If you're gifted with a rich interior life, fantastic. If you're not, that's okay too. Because what the Lord says is not how are you feeling at the moment. What he's saying to you is this, do you trust me enough to follow me? And when we do that, we will find the satisfying life that God promises for us. But even if the world ignores us, the Lord is there saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant, and thank you for serving me as I've called you to do.
That's why we praise Joseph. That's what I think we should take home today.